Welcome to OBEHAVE, the behavioral science podcast from Ogilvy Consulting. One of the vital things about this is that, one, the problem with economics isn't just that it's wrong, it's that it's creatively incredibly limited. Behavioral science makes it permissible in a business or policy-making setting to suggest counterintuitive things. Yes. Hi, I'm Julia Stainforth. And I'm Maddie Croucher, and we're the hosts of this podcast. We hope you enjoyed our special Nudstock episode featuring Roaming Mike interviewing speakers and guests throughout the day. If you haven't already checked it out, please do. You might notice an exciting new feature, brand new microphones. Some of you have pointed out that the audio quality could be improved, and we agree. We've worked to address this with the purchase of these two new microphones. Unfortunately, we didn't have them in time for this week's pre-recorded interview, but you can look forward to them on future podcasts. This week, we want to share with you a fascinating conversation featuring Rory Sutherland and David Graeber. Graeber is a professor of anthropology at LSE here in London, and also, as you'll hear in this interview, an activist anarchist who may have coined the famous phrase, we are the 99%. The focus of this interview was to discuss David Graeber's new book, Bullshit Jobs, in which he calls attention to the fact that countless workers in today's society are toiling in what he coins bullshit jobs, that is, jobs predominantly without meaning or utility. How long did you, had you nurtured the theory before you wrote the piece? Because you were asked to write a piece, weren't you, which was essentially in a series of what I dare do you <laughs> sincerely believe, which would be viewed as thoroughly outrageous, yeah. I suppose. Yeah, well, there was, there was a... Thing, thing called Strike Magazine, which spun off from International Times, actually. Uh, and that's where it comes from. And someone wanted a bit to do a print edition, and they said, no, this is an old book, it's not for our own. And they asked me to write something. And at this point, my death book had, had come out, and, and I was in demand. But I noticed that if you write something like that, you know, something that people consider sort of interesting, good, creative, then people, the world will inspire to make sure you never do that again by making you do the same essay, the same talk, the same book over and over again. And I thought, I'm going to do the opposite. I'm going to get every weird drunken party rant that no one would ever, you know, ever publish and, and get it out there somewhere. So these guys said, oh, you know, just write something for a new magazine, anything you like. And I said, when you say anything, are you actually serious? <laughs> and they said, yeah. And I said, okay, let's try it out. You know, because I... I I had so many times I'd been to parties, and I'm kind of a stranger to the academic, even professional managerial world. It's not where I grew up, so, uh, so I, almost, I almost feel like I'm an anthropologist uh, in, among exotic people when I go to these parties of the kind of people who are very academics now. Um, and, and, you know, you ask people, well, you know, what, what do you do? And often they, they'll say, oh, not really. Uh, and you think they're just being modest, right? But actually, they're, they're, they're being literally accurately true. You know, they actually do do nothing. And I just thought this was astounding. Uh, I started saying, well, how many people like this are there? Why, why, why do they ever, no one ever talk about this? You'd think this would be a, a profound social phenomenon that would be largely discussed, widely considered a social problem. You know, that all these guys say they're coming into the office and they're just pretending to work all day long. Or they are doing work that they feel is completely useless and pointless and should be successful. But why aren't we discussing this? So, so I wrote the piece for that. And it's a fantastic astute point, which is that you might expect, say, a communist regime 
uh, uh, and indeed you might expect government jobs mm -hmm. to produce a certain level of pointlessness. What's so peculiar is that these seem to exist equally, possibly even more so now, in the private sector, right. where neoliberal economic orthodoxy would say it shouldn't happen, that yeah. as soon as a job is pointless, it should be eliminated. Right, I mean, one of the arguments why uh, a free market system is superior to a socialist system is it doesn't do things like that. But it seems like the moment they knock out the competition, they instantly start doing it themselves, even more, if anything. Um, and, and it's a really interesting question. Uh, this is exactly what isn't supposed to happen. Yet, in fact, it happens, as you say, it happens more in the private sector. Someone looked at uh, American universities and you know, the, the rate of growth of, of um, administrative staff has just been, it's, it's extraordinary. It's, uh, I think teachers and students went up by 50% over the last 30 years, administrative staff went up by 240. Um, but at the same time, it, the rate was twice as high in private universities and public ones. Which is completely the opposite of what you expect. Yeah. And well, I, I think the fact that actually there's this kind of uh, bizarre tendency that, that you know, as you said, the great virtue of capitalism should be that it's got very, very highly attuned error correction yeah. and wastage correction mechanisms. Right, you go bankrupt. And yet, for some peculiar reason, there are a few weird exceptions. I think there was a case where the company Nintendo yeah. only employed 100 people. Oh. So, so, of course, if you think about it, most of it was licensing. Um, you produced games and you paid them a certain amount of money. But the tendency towards bloat mm -hmm. is extraordinary. And you're very fair in this, by the way, in the book, because you're not completely content to describe a job as bullshit if the person performing the job, at least themselves, mm -hmm. extracts some meaning and value from it yeah, and believes I, it to be worthwhile. But what, what amazed you, what amazed you was the number of people who came forward who said, and when you think about it, I mean, there's a very, very strong tendency for us to post-rationalize what we do to believe it's useful. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, philosophers talk about making the inevitable desirable. So it's adaptive preference formation yeah. is the behavioral science. There you go. Yeah. I mean, it's just hard to sit there for your entire life and say, you know, this is totally horrible and there's nothing I can do. I mean, you just can't live with yourself, so you come up with reasons. But And that's why the extraordinary thing is so so many people don't do that in this case. They just can't come up with an excuse for their job, no matter how hard they but I think you've got two advantages here. One as an anthropologist and secondly as an anarchist, yeah. which is both of them, if you like, are casts of mind where you're actually well-programmed to see the absurdity of things, mm -hmm. essentially. Right, and not assume there must be a good reason. There must be a good reason. <laughs> and I suppose you could say that the, the, a contrary discipline would be neoliberal economic thought, right. which tends to posit, and certainly bankers very much cleave to that, School of thought, because mm -hmm. it more or less says if you are being paid a large amount of money for something, then it must be commensurately valuable. Mm -hmm. So you can effectively look at your salary and view that as a kind of accurate measure of your worth. Right. Whereas I take the position that uh, it seems to be exactly the opposite: that the more your work benefits others, the less you're likely to get paid uh, paid for it. With, with you know certain well-advertised exceptions like doctors, but I guess there are some plumbers that make good money. I mean, there's a few, and there's some, there's some low-paid jobs that are also useless. But for the most part, that actually that seems to be the case. And, and the interesting thing is that a lot of people want to accept the market largely. I mean, they accept it in other things. You never get people saying, 
oh, I sell selfie sticks. Selfie sticks are stupid. People shouldn't buy them. You know, people don't do that. They say, well, if there's a market for it, people want it, who am I to judge, right? So, so service workers don't think what they're doing is stupid. I mean, they might think their clients are stupid, but they're providing service. Um, but at the same time, there's this terrible cognitive dissonance because you assume the market is, a, is a, an appropriate indicator of what something is worth. But you know from your own experience in your own job, that's not true. Because, you know, you're being paid 40000 a year to sit around and play fruit mahjong all day. Uh, it's an interesting thing. I mean, the thing that was, I suppose, eye-opening for me was I read a book by my friend Robert Frank. Um, uh, it's a book called The Darwin Economy. And he's essentially a, a very interesting. One of the things you learn from biology, which you don't learn from economics, is kind of runaway effects are perfectly possible. The Peacom's tail, which apparently made Darwin physically sick, as he claimed at the sight of it, because it seemed to be a complete refutation of natural selection. Not quite extraordinary. <laughs> I saw one just last week in Kobani, they had peacocks on, on the top of that hill they were fighting over now. Well, <laughs> how did that happen? How was that allowed to happen? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so at some level, you know, an acknowledgement, uh, you know, a rejection of kind of neoliberal orthodoxy requires just a perfectly healthy acceptance, in my view, that completely ridiculous things can happen. But in other words, the pursuit of perfectly rational and intelligent self-interest in a group mm -hmm. can lead to collective effects, which are kind of absurd. It's really like the madness of crap. The madness, yeah, yeah. <laughs> precisely. I mean, I'm, I'm intrigued to know, because I, I fundamentally believe that, uh, that you're right. Um, I'd also say that there are bullshit jobs. There are also jobs which are very valuable, which are increasingly suffused by bullshit. I mean, my oh, brother's yes. academic. That's another book. Yeah, I mean, oh God. I, I mean, mean, would you want to be started. a professor now? Because you know, I've got a, I've got a contemporary of mine who's possibly you know one of the most brilliant biochemists of his generation, mm -hmm. and more than fifty percent of his time is spent in basically grant applications. Yeah. Yeah. No, I actually wrote about uh, a piece some years ago. Another one of those rants that no one would normally let me publish. Uh, the piece came out with the title on flying cars and the declining rate of profit. And, and one of the things I pointed out is that we have this profound technological stagnation, which has to do with bureaucracy. That, you know, if you want, we all know what the best thing to do if you want to like maximize the possibility of unexpected scientific breakthroughs is. You know, you get a bunch of smart people and, and you give them the resources they want and they leave them alone. And you know, five of them will probably come up with nothing and the sixth one will come up with something that you never would have guessed. But, but if, you know, if you want to do exactly the opposite, to minimize the possibility of scientific breakthroughs, what better system could you get than to take those same six people and say, all right, you're going to spend half of your time trying to prove to me that you already know what you're going to invent. Andrew Stein, who came up with graphene, and also a levitating frog. And I don't think the two are actually unconnected. I think the kind of mind that will levitate a frog will also come up with graphene. But um, uh, he, he describes what he does as, I think, it's something like drive-by research. In other words, like model of the drive-by shooting. You find something that intrigues you. You blast a whole load of attention at it and see what happens. And the idea that you can actually promise in advance is an absurd notion. In fact, if you look at the It's a way of guaranteeing that only things you discover are kind of uninteresting. I mean, you could also point to the number of scientific breakthroughs that happen by accident. Absolutely. Or, yeah, when they're trying to do something. They're trying to do something else. It's a complete byproduct of what they were intending. And so, I mean, I think one thing I'd like to look at is do you think that the growth of IT? has possibly turbocharged this process. Absolutely. 
I, I, I think that one thing we don't realize is that while digitization and robots and whatnot, um, and computers in general, the application of computers, has enormous effect, positive effects on, on manufacturing, for example. You know, if you're, if you're just producing commodities, or even if you're sorting fruit or something like that, well, you know, uh, if you apply this kind of technology, well, it will create greater productivity, and thus they talk about technological deflation. You know, iPhones get cheaper all the time, they just make better ones, and the price stays the same. Um, all right, I, I agree that that's true. What people don't realize is that if, if anything involving qualitative interpersonal, you know, what a caring over, if you want to define that in the maximum way, yeah. to include health, education, anything where you're working on other people. Um, well, which is most of it always has been. Uh, well, all right, if, if you apply digitization to that, if you apply ID to that, it actually makes it less productive and you get inflation, which is exactly what we see. Because you have to spend half your time taking qualitative phenomena and trying to turn them into a, something that a computer can even understand. And, and that's what I do. Uh, I mean, I sit around filling out time allocation studies or taking course reading lists and turning them into a format that they can compare it to another course reading list. And, uh, for, if, you're, if you're sorting fruit, you just roll the fruit into a, into a bin. There's really very little prep. And then, you know, they, they have computers that can figure out which one's right and which one's rotten. But, but if you're doing course reading lists, you have to do enormous amounts of work just to turn it into a form that computers can, can actually compare them. They don't do a very good job. And and second of all, it's sorting fruit is boring, like comparing reading lists is kind of interesting. Why, why do you want to have a computer do it anyway? This is extraordinary. So I mean, one of the things I've always said as an analogy with IT is if you have a patch of ground which is 50% weeds and 50% flowers, and you fertilize it, whether the result is beneficial depends on whether the, the fertilizer benefits the weeds more than the flowers. Right. And I think it's perfectly possible that actually IT benefits productive employment to a small degree, and bureaucracy, and indeed government surveillance, all manner of other attractions, to an enormous degree. And so actually, although we, we selectively look at the beneficial effects of worthwhile activity and pat ourselves on the back, what it's done is create a kind of report, an extractive reporting culture, measurement culture, analysis culture. culture. They sometimes call it in academia. Yeah. I, I'm, not, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure Marx didn't get it wrong, actually, which is that I know it sounds pretty weird for me to describe myself as labor, okay? But I came into the advertising industry partly because it's a place where you can actually be reasonably, or you could be reasonably paid for actually doing a job, which was writing a person, okay? I mean, it, essentially, it's where being a greedy anthropologist, actually. <laughs> But what, what intrigues me is that it isn't really capital that's the, the, the problem. It's two intermediary costs, which is the financial system, which is not itself capital. It's no. the reporting and assessment and curation of value, not, you know. And then there's the managerial cost, mm -hmm. which essentially sucks up most of the productivity gains in rewards for itself. I have, to say, I have to say, I think the education industry, the education in industrial complex, mm -hmm. is complicit in this. Absolutely. In creating an idea that uniquely those people with educational qualifications are qualified to join the managerial caste. Which is becoming more and more extreme. I mean, the credentialism. And credentialism is tied to financialization. So um, all these wow. industries demand credentials so that they can basically get people in, in debt. And then, to, um, so all of a sudden, pharmacists in America need to have an MA. Uh, this never used to be the case. 
Uh, but essentially, it was lobbied by these companies, which then loaned them the money and charged them for these degrees that they don't really need. And then they just collect the perfect proportion of their subsequent income. So it's really the rebranding of indentured servitude. Absolutely. Under the guise of education. So a student loan is essentially what you might call it's the medieval guild reinvented for the 21st century, but dressed up in ways in which you claim you're creating human capital. I call it managerial feudalism. Uh, no, I, I spotted that, which yeah. I, it is, was a phrase that really chimed It seems really weird, by the way, because you probably assume the advertising industry is, uh, you know, sort of weirdly right-wing, conventional, capitalistic. Wow. It isn't quite. Um, I mean, it, it's... Uh, all over the place. It's all, it, it, it is all over the place. No, I agree with that. And um, uh, the managerial feudalism argument seems to be fair. So it's rather similar to, if you like, the Highland clearances, mm. where the real evil wasn't actually the landowner, it was the factors. The people who were very well paid for clearing people off the land That's right. Yeah. were actually the worst offenders in many ways. What was right. Sort of like the bailiff on a plantation. I'd call Sullivan, so I would be really careful talking about it, uh, Highland clearances. But it seems highly plausible to me that there's an absolute assumption, which is treated as axiomatic, that first of all, the way to advance yourself, the way to increase what you earn, is by managing other people and entering this managerial caste, yeah. which, at the very, even at a charitable interpretation, is mostly about curating or representing or assessing value, exactly. not actually about creating it. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, think about curating. I mean, I talk to artists all the time and say, like, 40 years ago, like, curators would exist in museums. But, like, nowadays, they're, they're the stars, you know? I mean, you know, they ask who curated a show at a gallery rather than who the artists are. Um, well, I suppose the DJ is a classic case of that, isn't it? Where you take other people's music yeah. and just arrange it. And put it in order, and, 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 and you're suddenly the artiste, yeah. There's a wonderful joke about that, which is the guy who couldn't understand the whole DJ culture. He had a friend who was massively into it. His friend said, we must go to this fantastic event because it's got a brilliant DJ. What kind of music is it? Well, he's just a great DJ. And finally, the friend gave up trying to get him to go to one of these weird raves and said, let's go to the cinema instead. To which the man replied, who's the projectionist? <laughs> <laughs> but that sort of, you know, the elevation of the intermediate is a really peculiar thing. Yeah. And it's happening across the creative industries. It's one thing, I, I, it would be really interesting to document in more detail. I just go over it very schematically, but I you know, talk to people involved in making movies, and it's just ridiculous. There's like seven layers. So I always used to ask people who are like script writers, like, I keep seeing these movies where you know, the entire movie seems to be building up to some obvious line or scene, and then it doesn't happen. And they're saying, oh, yeah, what the problem is they always have seven different guys in suits who are you know, intervening in the script. and. Um, and, and because they have such sub-infudation of managerial positions, all of these guys have nothing to do, and they need to prove that they're relevant somehow. So they'll change it around, so the entire thing turns into mush. This is pretty much our industry as well, is which it? is... Yeah. I mean, of course, IT, I think, just as it makes it difficult when someone's uh, behind the screen to tell whether they're working or playing Tetris, as it were, <laughs> it's also incredibly difficult in modern business to tell the difference between what you might call healthy rigor, and arse covering. And we'll always default to ask. I always, very gross simplification of human motivation, but in individual consumer behavior, mm -hmm. regret minimization seems to be, a, you know, that essentially we act in a way that we try and minimize regret. In business culture, it's, it's blame minimization. So you will take not the best decision, but the decision where you're least likely to get blamed. 
And so a huge amount of what you might call pre-rationalization, post-rationalization, a large amount of market research mm. exists not because it informs the decision made, but because it actually yeah. justifies them or defends the maker of the decision. Yeah. Probably more than half of the market research industry wow. exists. I mean, I'm, they'll go bonkers when I say this. But I mean, mm -hmm. cynical people who've left the industry would probably say that half the time we're asked to do something essentially to defend a decision maker, not to inform a decision. I mean, look at academic writing. One of the reasons it drives me crazy is that, you know, about two-thirds of the average academic article is anticipating any possible stupid objection or any way you can be misread to be saying something obviously dumb. And then say, but I'm not saying this, but I'm not saying that, but I'm not. And, you know, just like covering... So the qualification become, actually makes the work unreadable. Exactly. I mean, there's, you know, somewhere in here there's a point you actually are making, isn't it? You know, but you have... No, because I mean, ages to get to it. I mean, there is an interesting thing, which is, I suppose, I think it was Paul Collier said this, that the problem with academia is that the only currency is reputation. And reputation is, you know, fragile to the point where one misplaced decimal point mm -hmm. can destroy a career. And so it creates a kind of protective neurosis over what you do. Now, arguably, actually, having been producing five times as much work where 20% of it's wrong, might be a better outcome. Uh, it, it, it's exactly. I mean, and, and, and why not be wrong? Um, at least you're saying something. You might find out and 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 and, and sort of improve your position, uh, which you can't even do if it, it's a sense of morass. You can't even get at the actual stuff to critique. What happens? You know, you have to wade through the swamp before you get. So just to recap here, this is a book called Bullshit Jobs by David. Yeah, now we're just talking about bullshit. <laughs> but equally, I mean, the profusion and proliferation of bullshit, I think, uh, turbocharged by IT. Yeah. And also, I think it will be increasingly turbocharged by people having more and more data, mm. which they can then, under the guise of rigor, can essentially use to generate bullshit. Yeah, and to be perfectly honest, speaking as a political activist who's obviously under surveillance and everybody I know is, you know, I actually don't... So you're surveillance oh. here. I know your parents were in the US, weren't you? You discovered more or less that they were practically evicted for being communists. No, no, I was. I was you were. Evicted, yeah. They never, you know, my father and this never worked for the government or had anything with having to do with it. He was smart. He managed to, even though he was a premature anti-fascist, he bought in Spain, that's what they called him. You know, he managed to get out of fairly unscathed during the McCarthy period. I got kicked out of my place, but by police intelligence and counterterrorism, I think it was happened. The co-op board, that's a whole other story. Um, but, but, um, yeah, no, no, I mean, you just assume you're under surveillance. Every now and then it happens. Uh, my friend called me the other day and heard our previous conversation and played back at him. <laughs> Somebody hit play instead of record, I guess. Yeah. Ever since, I thought, oh, that's interesting. So I would call him up and leave messages saying, hello, tell Carlos it's raining in Nigeria. <laughs> <laughs> it's good for the petunias, but not the daffodils. <laughs> Daffodil drop. <laughs> Give them something to do. <laughs> but actually, I mean, I suppose this is actually an extraordinary thing. So this book arose out of this fantastic article, which went super viral. And what was fascinating about this piece, the original bullshit jobs piece mm -hmm. in Strike, was that when it went viral, you were then bombarded with emails from people. It was amazing, yes. And these were not people saying other people's jobs, my colleagues' jobs and all that. No, all about themselves. Actually, yeah. about themselves. And there's a great phrase, you know, it's difficult to get someone to believe something when his salary depends <laughs> on not believing him and all that sort of thing. Believing it. And yet, 
here were people actually writing in from the private sector as well. In many cases, you might say, well, these people have actually lucked out, they've got a sinecure, but they really, really hate it. You actually make the point that it's extremely it's debilitating. It's incredibly demoralizing. And one of the things I was trying to understand in the book is why, is we're taught the opposite, right? I mean, we're taught that we're all, you know, economics, for example, you know, makes an entire science out of the assumption that people are essentially, like, selfish and lazy, and, and you want to, in rationality means investing as little as possible and getting the maximum. And therefore the only incentive is yeah. to add to their Yeah. yeah. So, so as a result, if you're getting paid a lot of money to do nothing, you should be, this is great, you awesome. know, I win, wonderful. But in fact, that's not the way people feel at all. Um, it, 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 and, and part of the misery is not knowing, feeling justified in being miserable, because I should feel I'm getting something for nothing. You know, why am I complaining? But in fact, there's people's sense of who they are in the world is largely invested in what they do. And if you ask somebody what do you do, they assume that you mean for a living. Yes. Uh, so so people actually, identify with their jobs, and if they are aware that essentially they're being forced to be frauds and parasites against their will, it just completely destroys people psychologically. And so you're essentially, you, 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 this purposelessness, even when well, well rewarded. Yeah. Is, I, I mean, you know, there's some people who are, seem to be happy with their bullshit jobs. Surprisingly few. Statistics imply it might be about 6%. Because, you know, the, the number of satisfaction was actually higher than the number of people who thought their jobs had a point. Well, some of them might hate their families. They're just, you know, like their co-workers learning a skill. You know, there's various reasons. You can find work fulfilling even though you don't really feel that there's a good reason for it to exist. But it's pretty rare. And in the case studies I got of people who said they actually liked their jobs, Almost always it was people who knew exactly what they were getting into. So, you know, they became a substitute teacher, or they were a French civil servant. So, you know, you, you kind of know what to expect. You're not going to be disappointed. Um, and, um, and and they had a nice work environment, you know. They were unsupervised, and, and they got along with their colleagues. So, well, that could be okay. I, most of them would rather be doing something useful. But also, if you have a job where they really leave you alone, sometimes you actually can do something useful. So, you know, the substitute teacher said, well, I decided to learn Chinese. Gotcha. Yeah. And, that, and that's interesting, because the degree of autonomy, because one of the things I think that happens is the degree of supervision um, is not necessarily there to get more work out of people. It's there to report upwards. Yeah. And actually, there's an argument to say that the financial sector's, in a sense, destroying the goose that lays the golden eggs, mm -hmm. in that its demand it's worth, it's worth making a distinction, I think, between capital in the Marxist sense yes. and what you call, I think, it's, it's fire, isn't it? Fire, yeah, the fire finance, sector, insurance, right real estate, which is a great big, not sure about insurance, I think insurance actually has a, 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 mm -hmm. a genuine value, yeah. but a huge amount of F and RE are really extractive. Yes. In that you can't claim that they add value, they're essentially there about the extraction of pre-existing assets. And that's where most profits are from. If you look at the figures yep. of Wall Street, the city, even even industrial companies like General Electric or car companies, they're actually making all the money in the financial division. You're right. Rent-seeking in some shape or form is actually a, a more lucrative than making cars, yeah. which is kind of terrifying. But you actually make cars now so that you can generate loans, essentially. Right. So they make the money off lending people money to buy the cars, not for the cars themselves. Uh, so uh, what's interesting about that is that one of the things that you have when you have a huge... I mentioned the intermediary managerial sector, which I think is basically exploiting labor. I, I um, 
Yeah. And then there's also the finance sector, which in a weird way is exploiting capital. And what it's doing is, what it needs isn't actually gains or returns, as subjectively defined by capital. It's information which can justify or help them curate or present mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the decisions they made. So it's essentially looking for defensive information. Uh, yeah, and it's, it's bureaucratization in a way. I think there's a continuity. Um, the trick is to make you think that the forms of assessment are where the value actually comes from. Exactly. Yeah, it's beautiful. That's, we'll repeat that. So the forms of assessment are where the value comes from. Right. Exactly, I think, the myth under which we're laboring, which is that uh, it also, of course, assumes that the only value is that which can be assessed, numerically quantified, and so on. I mean, it's an interesting one. The other thing that I would, uh, which would make me sound sort of weirdly Marxist, is I've worked in marketing long enough for, say, 30 years, to realize that there are certain jobs, for example, a really, really good call center worker, by which I mean not someone who's an outbound telemarketer, but someone who actually responds to your call and solves your problem in a brilliant and charming and friendly way. I don't think it would be unreasonable if someone was experienced and really good at that to pay them a very large salary, by which I mean six figures, if, you know, if you're that good. But it's defined as the kind of job, there are only two kinds of jobs, there are managerial jobs, middle class jobs done by graduates, in which it's assumed it's a tournament, that you're competing for talent, right. and that therefore the rewards at the top have to be disproportionately higher than the rewards at the bottom. And then there are jobs where it's assumed that you should try and pay the minimum wage. Right. Or, or nothing. I mean, if, if there's any reason that somebody might do something other than for the money, you try to figure out if you can make, do it entirely free. That's another problem. And then the other problem is that in order to actually, if you're in those jobs, the way in which to actually get more money is purely by moving into administration. Yeah. There's no other way. So interestingly, you know, as um, uh, you know, if you want to be a well-paid teacher, now a really good teacher, no reason why you couldn't pay them a six-figure sum, but in order to gain that, they've got to become a headmaster. Right. Okay. So the opportunity is to actually, there's, I can't see a logical reason. You might argue that they made a mistake in things like nursing originally, in that the egalitarianism of the pay meant that there were then effectively no really high-paid jobs for practitioners, which is an interesting question. So, you know, it's assumed in, you know, in, for example, in advertising or in banking that, you know, someone who's very good will be paid five times as much right. as someone who's ace nurse. But, yeah. but the ace nurse, without moving into nursing administration or some sort of bureaucratic world, can't really advance right. Or you can go and get a degree and sort of then become yeah. a nurse practitioner. And so the credentialist yeah. thing yeah. kicks back in. Yeah. And there seems to be something going on there which, again, strikes me as inefficient and extractive because the people who are best at what they do are trying to get out of doing it. I know, and I got some complaints from people like that that were really interesting. There's a one guy who's a middle manager, and I, you know, almost everybody in corporations feels that most middle managers are in bullshit jobs. You don't usually get that from the middle managers themselves, no. but um, you do get it from some people who've just become middle managers. You know, before they basically drink the Kool-Aid or realize it's not in their interest to talk about it. Um, so you have people saying, well, you know, I used to actually do work, and now they, so they kicked me upstairs, and now I'm supposed to supervise people doing what I used to do. I know perfectly well they don't need supervision. I used to do it. So, um, yeah, and, and um, they, they say, well, 
And sometimes I try to sneak myself real work on the slides. I'm the one who's supposed to assign them. But then my boss catches on and figures it out and says, hey, cut that out. You're supposed to be supervising. Stop doing real work. Of course, so, I, I, I'm completely imagining that. Just, the other thing that I suppose what you're doing there is because of the need to report everything quantifiably, an awful lot of real jobs, by which I mean anything from nursing to being a copywriter, it doesn't really matter, but real work, involves mostly, I think, tacit knowledge. It's not something you can necessarily explain or quantify. It's hard enough. It's, it's, and it's generally derived through just iterative experience, mm -hmm. I suppose. So the, you know, the point I make about tacit knowledge is that you know, a truck driver is inordinately better at reversing an articulated lorry into a narrow gateway mm -hmm. than the professor of engineering at Imperial College. Absolutely. Yeah. Because he's done it a lot of times and he mm -hmm. just knows. He may not even know that he knows, but somehow he's developed the instincts which mean he can just do it straight off. It's one of those things, I don't know, I don't know if you have this, Julia, but it's kind of like bloke awe. When you watch that being done, someone, you know, a really nifty bit of uh, reversing mm. of a really large kind of articulated vehicle, you're kind of like, you know, not, you know, not worthy. Uh, and yet none of that is really allowed to count in a credentialist age because experience isn't deemed to be particularly valuable. Because it's qualifications that are valuable, not experience, which is a really dangerous assumption of where value is. Absolutely. It's actually, this is one thing the Soviets got right, and they don't get enough credit for it. We talk to people, well, our education system is really good. You know, we managed in 18 years to get people up to the level of XU until they're 21. And the way they did it was exactly by, by assuming that's the case. Soviet psychology, Gotsky people said, you always can operate one level of complexity higher than you understand. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so you start people doing it, and then later you explain them what it is they did. And that was, works much better. I'm brief cheek, because I don't often get the chance to talk to anarchists, although funny enough, I've got one or two colleagues uh, who are anarchists. But uh, one, what's the anarchist view of the advertising and marketing industry? Are you okay on subjective value creation? Well, I mean, artificial creation of demand, I think, to, depends on what. Um, I, I, I'm just talking to myself. I think a lot of anarchists are very, very down on advertising insofar as it's designed to make people hate themselves and, and endlessly seek out false um, solutions to problems that don't need to exist. You know? uh, in fact, one of the people in, in uh, who sent a testimony to me was sort of, just, was a special effects guy, who set out what could be in his position quite clearly. He said, you know, there's nice illusions and then there's, there's evil illusions. The nice illusions are just for fun and you know it's an illusion and you're playing along. And then there's the ones where he said a lot of the special effects works is is not you know not to make dinosaurs appear or spaceships, but to 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 touch up people so that you think that they're much prettier than they actually they really are. are. Yeah. So that you just have a totally false impression of what people actually look like. Um, so 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 as to actually create insecurity about yourself to then go off and you know the other special effects to make it seem and ads that products work a lot. Well, I suppose you could also do that for selection. That Facebook is yeah. largely people presenting the best five percent of their life to you. Yeah, yeah, no, they've outsourced that onto people now. Yeah, yeah. so they don't even have to do it themselves. <laughs> <laughs> you, and you make very good distinctions, I think, in terms of games as well. There are the games which you know are a game and which you can opt out of. Right, exactly. And then there are games within which you are trapped. Right, I, 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 gave, I was trying to be provocative. I thought it was a really nuanced view. I thought it was really good. You know, yeah. that actually, there's, you, you've got to be, you know, 
at, you know, at some level, an awful lot of human activity involves some sort of gameplay with shared rules. And even power games. There's nothing wrong with a power game if, if you can just say, wait, I don't like this game, stop. You know? um, and that's why I use the example of SM. You yes, no. have the fun is that you can say orange and they'll stop. They pop wax on you, or whatever it is they're doing. Say, oh, wait, are you okay? You know, so, so, you know, so you know at any time you can make it stop. That's why it's a game. That's why it's fun. But in in in, in real life, as it were, um, you can't. There's do no safe that. word. Yeah, there's no, no safe word. So, so in a way, as a, as an anarchist, you know, social liberation would mean introducing a safe word into all aspects of, uh, of our lives. You know, if you want to say it to your boss, if you want to say it to your teacher, if you want to say it to Members of your family are making your life a living hell. Wait, no one. So. This is just turning into a power play. Stop. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I find this really, really interesting. So, you, you grew up almost in a communist family, is that a Marxist family? Well, they were Marxist. I mean, my father was in the Communist Party in college and dropped out, like um, during the Spanish Civil War. He realized what was going on. Right. So he was in the non-communist branch of the veterans of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. But you know, he was in those circles. Yeah. How, he, he dropped out, he was a very, actually a very, very early person to detect He said problem. that he saw a movie um, where Stalin appeared from a white plane in a white suit to solve all the problems, and he said, I thought this was supposed to be a democratic movement, there's something really creepy going on here. And that was the moment where he quit. Do you think, as Randy mentioned that, that Stalin <laughs> is solving the problem was the cult of personality, do you think there's a problem with sort of I'm not going to say anime because you're an you know, anthropologist and you probably know what it means, but I don't know. But one of the problems with capitalism is that if if you live under Kim Jong un and your post arrives on time, you have a system to which to be grateful. And you go, thanks to the beneficent uh, right. Juche methods of Kim Jong un, okay. uh, our postman has delivered our post despite the climatic conditions he's had to endure. Okay. One of the problems with capitalism is that. I, either because when you achieve something rather brilliant, but through self-interested motives, mm -hmm. we're not grateful to it, or because we don't, I mean, there's an element to which, you know, the NHS uh, is something we love partly because we can express gratitude to it because we mm -hmm. don't perceive it as being predominantly self-interested. But that capitalism as a system doesn't really find a way of garnering credit for the things it does do quite well. Now, by the way, I'm not claiming for a second that it does everything well. I think that's delivering posts it does pretty well. Yeah. Okay. So, and also innovation, I think it's fair to say, it probably does right. well simply because the absence of central planning. Right. And I mean, at some level, I think we don't even know what we ourselves want. So the only way to actually find out what value is is to have various people with competing theories and the market decides. Yeah. And also, we don't know what we don't want. So actually, you know, killing off things by making them go bankrupt is probably an essential part of mm -hmm. you know any sort of dynamic system. But we yeah, don't. It depends on what you're trying to do. If you're trying to figure out what the best, how to have the best restaurants, a market system will probably work. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, certain larger things, maybe not so much. But it all has to do with scale. And that's like similar with bullshit jobs. I mean, you know. There aren't a whole lot of bullshit jobs in restaurants. You know that is about the scale where capitalism doesn't run. Then when you get up to these very very large structures, it seems to the, the internal dynamic seems to be very very different. Yes, you're right. They start actually very very large companies become indistinguishable from kind of uh, Soviet bureaucracy. Soviet bureaucracy. Yeah, that actually you know that self justification takes over. Mm -hmm. 
The only difference is that the bullshit jobs in the Soviet system tended to be proletarian because that's what they have. Of course. And here they tend to be managerial. Yeah. And also, of course, the managerial ones suck out the proletariat, so they become progressively less useful. It would be quite a good thing if you actually maintain people's salary uh, in management and put them back into practice, yeah. my fantasy, which is to have a managerial salary while doing a genuine proletariat. Proletarian is probably a bit extreme, but you know, a genuinely useful and purposeful job. There was a time that there was a little of that happened. But the interesting thing is how much resentment they managed to direct toward people who achieved that, like auto workers in the U.S. Yes. You know, um, assembly line workers with a union in a good plant. Oh, they were making okay, they had a nice little middle class lifestyle. They had a house, they had two cars, they went on vacation with their kids, yep. the Grand Canyon or the Coliseum. But the amazing thing is the hatred and resentment they managed to. To, to, to vote against that. I mean, they were the only guys who took a hit after the economic crisis. It wasn't the bankers actually caused the crisis. It wasn't even the managers of the auto plants that got bailed out and caused them to go bankrupt. It was the assembly line guys who were actually doing something. And you make a very similar point about tube drivers yeah. going on strike, which is we get absolutely livid when they go on strike. But the very fact that the withdrawal of your labor causes a crisis is fairly good evidence that what you're doing is right. useful and essential. Yeah, middle managers went on strike, no one would know. You also make, make the point that Belgium was functioning without a government. Yes. So there's been no transport minister, no education minister, and actually nothing seems to suffer. Yeah. You know? <laughs> So, so, I mean, this, this, this thing that I think, I think you're actually right, there's the illusion that by quantifying things, curating things, and representing them, uh, you're essentially hijacking value yeah. by being essentially the face of it rather than the creator. Right. Being the guy who assesses it. Who assesses it, And those yeah. pieces of paper become... Actually, in my book on bureaucracy, I, one of my favorite paragraphs was about that. I said there's, you know, financialization is really the fetishization of forms. It's all about paperwork. And and, and there's a, a direct line between, you know, the annoying guy seeing whether you're really using that room or whether you're, you know, really um, working, looking hard enough to get a job to, to deserve benefits. And, and um, the guy in, in the city who's taking a bet on how long it takes you to default on your mortgage. In either case, the assumption is the value comes from the, the, the documents assessing and, 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 and the, you know, what they think you're going to do rather than, than the actual value of your doing it. You also make a fantastic point in the book about the fact that for the most of human history, the idea of buying someone's time is deeply alien. Yeah. So you could buy you could buy a pot from a potter in ancient Rome, or you could, in the case of slavery, you could buy a potter. A potter but the idea of buying the time of a potter would have seemed to a Roman completely bizarre. Yeah, and and, and wage labor has just been so naturalized. I, I, I was impressed by this because I read a, something by Moses Finley, a great classicist. Um, who I see in some ways I see as a predecessor because he was also like. A Jewish kid from New York who got in political trouble and ended up getting a nice job in the, uh, in the UK. Uh, <laughs> real name was like Mo Finkelstein. We are actually, I mean, I, I drive past, I drive through Bromley and occasionally pay a little homage to the Peter Kropotkin house in oh. Crest Road. And Britain has been actually benefited yeah. hugely by essentially being a home for, for people like me. It's great. It's I'm fantastic. Happy. Yeah. We kind of just don't care that much. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think there's also, a, this is going to sound a really weird thing, but we also possibly lost something, actually. 
it would see, this would be an unbelievably dangerous position for me to take, speak as I do. But a class system was in some ways healthy. Now let me just explain this. Which is that if you take it as axiomatic that what you earn is basically a proxy for your value, what you have to say is that a doctor doing cosmetic surgery is more valuable than, say, a heart surgeon because he's paid more. Now, within the medical fraternity, the, the guy doing butt lifts in Rio de Janeiro is probably the richest doctor, but he doesn't have the higher status. That yeah. your status is, to some extent, commensurate with the value of what you do. To a degree, yes. I mean, at least within the field. Yeah. I mean, banking was a pretty low, pretty low status occupation in the UK in the 1970s and 80s. Mm. You were fairly well rewarded, but you were assumed to be a bit thick. Mm. You know, so and actually, of course, when thick people were in banks, they were much, much safer because they didn't over-intellectualize, they didn't have the intellectual right. So when they decided they were all geniuses, they And they could effectively... Yeah. And, and yeah. one of the problems of both intelligence and telling people they're intelligent is you boost their powers of self-justification so they can find a reason for practically anything they can do. Right. And, um, and one, of, you know, one, of the, one of the interesting things that would happen, I think, in Britain is you know, the local teacher was never... But, you know, I come from both farmers and you know the old headmaster. And the local headmaster wasn't particularly well paid, but he was a sort of pillar of the local community and achieved respect in the way that a wealthier shopkeeper didn't. And if we actually break that down, where there is at least a sort of dual status mechanism, I found it very interesting because I, I was talking to a friend of mine who worked in the financial sector. And I said, I asked a question which would not seem a ridiculous question even in advertising, which I said, who is the most respected person in your bank, as distinct from the best paid? And he said, we don't understand the distinction. Oh. Now in medicine, that would seem absurd, okay? If, if the most respected doctor in the world was also the best paid doctor, you know, that, that would require essentially that someone who performed some fantastic medical breakthrough mm -hmm. was less respected than some guy I actually met a guy the other week who eventually uh, made millions by cornering the Belgian market in able bleaching. Okay. Oh, now, it's, you know, it's apparently a very inexpensive procedure for which you can charge a lot simply because nobody wants a cheap anal bleach. Okay. No, you really don't you, want that to go It's well. kind of evident good, isn't it? I guess it's, a, yeah. You really don't want that to go well. No, it's apparent. I didn't know it was a thing, but, uh, but of course, this is one of the things is that once it becomes a thing, it's a thing. But um, it, it would be crazy if that man were more respected than, for example, you know, a pioneering person in, you know, somebody surgery or cancer, or surgery or oncology or something. Mm -hmm. But actually, in the financial sector, that's pretty much how the rules work, which astounded me. I thought that was uh, bizarre. I guess if there's any place, it would be all about money. Though. Yeah, yeah. I mean, makes a certain amount of sense. But I mean, it's, it's certainly true in academia that the highest-paid people are the people who have the most to do with money. And yes. nobody thinks that they're the smartest or the most interesting. And in, in fact, often they're, it's almost seen as, as a choice. I mean, just as in going into academia, you know, you know you're giving up the possibility of making a six-figure income immediately as a lawyer. Anybody could do six years of grad school, can do three years of law school, and make you know, ten times the money. Um, so you know, you know, you're sacrificing a certain amount of prestige and even more interest. If, uh, at least my job won't be pointless and boring. Also, um, autonomy, yeah. which we don't really know how to put a value on. Do we? I mean, mm -hmm. the way I make it work is first of all, I got the job title vice chairman, which is the only job title worth having in the private sector because it's suitably ill-defined. 
And the second thing is I, I earn some money doing public speaking, for which I'm well paid. I give that money to the company, which in return buys me, you know, 50% of my time being essentially oh, discretionary. So it's a very interesting sort of symbiotic relationship. I see, I see, it makes yeah. sense, because it's a little bit like the same phenomena in terms of power that I was talking about in terms of money. Um, I always say, when people say how much money would be the ideal amount, or how much money would you want to make, I always say, I want to make exactly the right amount of money that I don't have to think about money. Yeah, if I have no money, I have to think about money. If I have too much money, I have to think about money. To hit it just right in the middle, I never have to think about money. That's a, it's a very, very good way of describing it, actually. Well, actually, there's an argument there. You also, at the end of the book, you're a big fan of the... By the way, I think anarchism makes a branding mistake. I'm going to say that. It identifies or becomes identified with the left, which is, I don't think, where it entirely belongs. And there are traditions of individualist and, and market anarchism going like that. But I mean, I don't that anarcho-syndicalism is sort of capitalist, as it just believes in a different form of... Well, anarcho-syndicalist, I mean, they, they believe in self-managed industry. Actually, a lot of anarcho-syndicalists, I mean, there's, like the IWW, their slogan was against the wage system, you know, abolition of wages. So, you know, it would be hard to imagine capitalism above that. But that's how you define it. At a certain size, and I'd say that, you know, a 150-man ad agency, until it's sold, at which point 90% of the gains for selling it go to about six people. Mm. But until that point, it's, it's, you know, it operates a little bit like a collective. Mm. Once you scale up beyond that size, beyond the, mm. the Dunbar number, as it were, yeah. it becomes harder and harder. Actually, one of the things that I write about in, in my book on debt is uh, that, you know, if you talk about communism as simply a matter of from each according to their abilities to each according to their needs, you know, the slogan says, well, most companies operate it that way internally. I mean, it's only rational you, you, if you're cooperating of uh, uh, fixing something and somebody says, hand me the wrench. You don't say, yeah, what do I get? You know, you assume that you're on a common purpose of people do it according to their needs and abilities. It's interesting, isn't it? Because there's a fantastic phrase, it's in the Seed Taleb's latest book, which is called Skin in the Game. Which is a very interesting. I mean, the interesting point he makes is that most most people in real jobs, if you're a truck driver, whatever, you have skin in the game. In other words, you know, um, the people we've got to worry about are the growing two to three to four percent of people in life who essentially don't have skin in the game. I.e., they're betting with other people's money. Mm -hmm. They're uh, you know expressing foreign policy decisions for which they don't have to suffer the consequences and so forth. Very interesting because I'm, I'm writing something up um, when I was in the cab coming here based on a conversation I had with Brian Eno uh, about education. We're, we're talking about how education prepares you for both good jobs. And um, one of the points he made was that you know if they really wanted to, to, to prepare kids, um, they would have, have some consequences. They talk of economics and say, why not just actually organize the school lunch program? And, and see what the cost of that, you know, like what it's actually like, or, you know, oh, if you're trying to teach kids about democracy, have them actually organize something, or, or how they go about their day. And I realized that the kind of tied in with something I've noticed about the, the sort of the idea of opinions. Um, American educational system, you have Dewey try to introduce all these democratic elements, so they're always asking you your opinion, um, which they don't do in France or India or someplace like that. But, but the opinion has no consequences. It's completely free-floating, and therefore opinions take this kind of a extremist, oh, I say just kill them all, you know, uh, let's kick them out, you know, this kind of thing. You say that because there's, you have no skin in the game. It's, 
as he would say, there's no consequences. So, so why not? Yeah. 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 So, so, you know, I always say, like, you know, Theresa May doesn't have opinions. She has policies and positions. People who actually have power don't have opinions because they don't, you know, opinions are what you have when what you say doesn't have any consequences anyway. So, so it becomes self-reinforcing. So you say, oh, well, we can't have democracy because, listen, people, they're just so extreme. You know, they'll just, like, bring back capital punishment and kill people and make war every time somebody offends them. But, of course, that's the, the only reason they have opinions. Because like there is isn't because, really democracy. Yeah, it's because, yeah, if they had to sit around and deliberate on things and knew there were going to be consequences, they wouldn't be talking about it. It's a very interesting question in market research, which is that if you, the cleverest way you might make make research questions is where it involves a trade-off. And that's to some extent why actually uh, what, what economists call um, uh, what's it, revealed preference rather than stated preference. If someone actually buys a product, it is a reliable indicator that they want it. Okay. Whereas actually saying, I would really like that and I would buy it without actually having to open your wallet mm. is cheap talk. It's meaningless yeah, information. So if you ask people opinions where you don't suffer the consequences, where there's no trade-off or downside risk, mm -hmm. essentially opinions will polarise as people essentially... Yeah, that's interesting. There's an against opinion. Also against policy, that's more. So what are you in favour of? Sort of emergent experimentation? democracy. And yeah. for people getting together and working things out. And, you know, there's a whole different series of habits. And one of the things that fascinates me about my involvement in, in anarchist organizing is that... <laughs> Sorry. But, no, anarchists are just people who, who think you don't need to hold a gun to someone's head to get them to organize. They'll just do it all by themselves. Um, but, you know, one of my great experiences is that, uh, you know, people just behave very differently when you actually trust them. So one of the things we do is we have the idea of a block, you know, anybody can stand up and say, wait, wait, I veto this, I, I, I you know, you play the role of the Supreme Court or something and say this violates a fundamental principle. The people almost never do it, but the fact that the people know that they could at any time just sort of step in and stop the whole thing means that um, they have a sense that there's a real consequence to their opinions, so they measure it, and they're much more willing to reach compromises with other people if they know they don't have to, but no one's going to force them to. Something you say there about the people with autonomy, responsibility, and indeed skin in the game, in yeah. a sense. Um, and of course, the more you impose metrics on people, the more you create not only distortions in their behavior or gaming of the system. I mean, the reason, by the way, you can't book a doctor's appointment two days ahead of time is because doctors are measured on the percentage of patients they see in the same day. Oh, so by making you ring up at 8.30 and saying, no, you can only book an appointment for today, they hit 100%, get a great big oh, tick, well. and presumably get some fancy shit for their surgery as a reward. I don't know. But I mean, the whole business of trying to quantify... Right, this um, is like giving, giving police, like, um, uh, but they do this all the time. They get rewarded for how many tickets they give out, or how many people they arrest. And, of and they don't actually make a distinction between a traffic violation and murder. So in other words, it creates this perverse incentive where you... Utterly perverse, yeah. And I'm saying, you know, I spent three days tracking down a serial killer, and, you know, and I just got one arrest. We just had that case, haven't we? The Golden State Killer, or E-A-R-O-N-S. Uh, what was it? Basically, it was 40 years' work, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. But actually, the fascinating case of kind of voluntary police work there, because there's this huge community of amateur sleuths who've been online and read it. 
uh, you know, performing, I think, some measure of pretty useful work. Right, because the work really needs to be done. done. People will want to do it. This is my basic income argument. You know, oh, I'd you know, love to talk about this because okay. well, basic income argument fascinates me because I mean, I'll just mention something that it's worth looking at, which Google found. So Google, Google, in its kind of slightly nerdy way, set out to find what was the single criterion which best qualified a high-performing team of people. And of course, they punish in loads and loads of data points, and they basically found, their first assumption being Google was that it was going to be Ivy League education, was a you know, huge IQ. And we overrate IQ, I think mm. it's uh, hugely overrated. It's, it's the last acceptable form of prejudice. That Absolutely. Um, uh, you know, I, I think it only, my, my great well, that in class, you can, you, can, you can say terrible things about rednecks. Yes, no, uh, yeah, yeah, you're obviously right, yeah. Oh, that's that, which is a peculiarly really nasty. Uh, I noticed this in the U.S. Mm. The odd, the odd thing is, you can say things about people from my left here, or, or, or poor white working class people. That anybody else you just instantly explore you. The, the, most, the most unfairly vilified part of the United States is the red states, because I have to admit, now admittedly, I'm white and British, so I'm not like a threat. Okay. When I go to a red, you go to Massachusetts, they're, they're basically assholes, okay? Like they're highly liberal, you know, everyone, they tick all the boxes, but it's not very nice. Texas, fantastic, lovely place. And so there seems to be an inverse correlation between your political <laughs> state and actually how nice you are in day-to-day interaction. Yeah, no, a lot of the South, they, the, the social grace and generosity, you know, the trying to be understanding of others, but with extreme exceptions so Google did this thing just to go back to that and they couldn't find anything and then they read some book which essentially said that the degree to which you believe you have autonomy and responsibility and the degree to which essentially your boss covers you mm. so the, the real job of management I think is to make the people beneath you feel that it's safe to make mistakes occasionally Mm. Broadly speaking, that it's a, it's a kind of protective layer, and they and they looked at this now whether it subsequently influenced them because if of course if it doesn't cohere with some preconceived notion, you know a lot of scientific findings don't actually go very far. They found this was the really predictive factor. But who are you going to get in trouble with except other managers? Well, the answer there was that if you have a highly controlling culture, which is probably what, funnily enough, ironically, what Google's very obsessive measurement might be creating, where you attempt to measure everything because data will provide oh, the answer. Right. Right. So you just mess up the metrics. And you also, of course, the other thing is you never get lucky because you create such uniformity of behavior that nobody ever has a happy accident, in a sense. Um, mm -hmm. So, I mean, you know, there, you know, there's a degree to which just actually there's a degree of healthy variation in human behavior because different things work in different circumstances and so on. But I, I found that interesting. And your point that actually you can essentially destroy a workforce by treating it in the way in which quite a lot of management orthodoxy would suggest that Taylorism essentially yeah. is, you know, highly destructive. I found I find that I, I, I think everybody this is where I think your viral communication got such a response. I think Everybody in a business will actually instinctively acknowledge that's kind of true. The, the, the degree of policing and the degree of measurement and quantification actually destroys what it's supposed to measure. I've got that experience in my own life all the time. I mean, LSE is supposed to be the worst university in terms of how much time spe is spent you know, assessing, quantifying, 
discussing, predicting, um, reviewing what you do and how much time you spend actually doing it. Um, it's, I, I actually get off pretty easy. Um, I'm, I'm one of the privileged few who gets to spend most of my time writing books and, and teaching stuff. Although a lot of that is done in your spare time. There's this feeling that it's not your real work. <laughs> I mean, I, I, they give me these time allocation studies and I always point out, it's like, you notice this, you know, you have 27 different varieties of administrative work. You don't actually have a category for reading books. I'm supposed to be a professor. I mean, is that like this, like an extra thing I do when nobody's looking? Oh, we've probably hit a level of development in the world where actually real progress is going to come from uh, what you might call unexpected payoffs. In other words, you do lots of irrelevant things for five years and then you hit pay dirt. Mm -hmm. And so the, the other question to look at is the time constraints over which you are measured. Which, of course, is a problem of the financial sector as well. What the financial sector wants isn't actually really impressive gains over seven years, which is what capital might want, or even a reasonable chance of an extraordinary upside. Mm -hmm. What they want is regular reporting, yeah. so that they can... In fact, there's an argument that says that if you're in the financial sector as an intermediary, you'd rather report a constant 3% gain than have, you know, up 50, up 50, down 20. Right. Because... It's the ability to present what you're doing as kind of consistent, regular, linear. Mm. That's where you, you you actually derive your defensive information from. So it's a uh, um, yeah, right. So it's yet another version of ass covering. It, it is, uh, yeah, yeah. In other words, boring predictability, which isn't really what maybe the the investor wants, is undoubtedly what the intermediary wants to a degree. So we must get on to guaranteed basic income, which okay. is an interesting idea. Um, one, one thing, I mean, you are presumably familiar with that Keynes book, your Economic Possibilities oh, for yeah, Our Grandchildren. And it occurs to me that there isn't actually a mechanism. I mean, I, one thing I always talk about as an example of social norms is the fact that all Americans think two weeks vacation is perfectly acceptable. <laughs> now, I've never met anybody in Europe who's so right-wing that they say, mm -hmm. you know, Britain could get an extra 3% of GDP if we just had less holiday time. I've never met anybody. In fact, if you said that, people would effectively, you know, want to Once you get something like that, you can't take it you away. You can't take it away. Yeah. So the problem is, you obviously have two equilibrium states, and the difficulty is not our equilibrium state, it's getting from one to the other. So the first person in an American company to ask for four weeks vacation would be the lazy guy. Mm -hmm. So in other words, the costs disproportionately pay. I mean, it took Henry Ford to get the two-day weekend, ironically. Right. Uh, the other thing and the is, anarchists are pushing for it for years. Yeah, no, they would have been. Anarchists and Quakers are usually ahead of the curve, aren't yeah. they? Like uh, no, other anarchist Quakers, I guess there are. Oh, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, actually, the consensus process, uh, which is now the sort of mainstay of anarchist um, organizing, actually comes out of the Quaker tradition. And at first, the Quakers wouldn't teach it because they considered it a sacrament and they didn't want to proselytize. Um, so, so and then they white labeled it, as we yeah. call it. For the and, and there were these yeah. rebel anarchist Quakers who sort of broke with them and taught people how to do it. But uh, yeah. actually, that's what we need more. We need Quaker revival, I think. That's what, that's what the uh, country really needs. Mm -hmm. I mean, actually, of course, Quaker capitalism is interesting because well, it was highly purposeful and, uh, and also pretty benign. You know the famous line about the Quakers in America that they came to America to do good and ended up doing well. Yes, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I, but the, the guaranteed basic income, which uh, uh, 
fascinatingly, my grandfather, who's a doctor in a Welsh mining town, mm. and a pretty right-wing guy, I think, by all accounts, mm. he always supported the idea. Nixon kind of liked the idea. Friedman was a Quaker. Okay. <laughs> of course he was, yeah. Friedman kind of liked the idea. Now, there's something that really interests me about it as an idea, which is that it's actually a way of kind of redistributing wealth in a way that doesn't make right-wing people angry. Yes, and it's kind of surprising. I mean, they might get them angry when they figure out what's really entailed. Well, no, so my hunch is that people's explanation of their political views is really a post-rationalization of an emotional reaction. I think that's the reason a lot of it. What I suspect right-wing people hate about uh, redistribution of wealth is redistribution of wealth. Okay, I think that a few things. One of which is they want reward differentials preserved. Now, interestingly, the um, the guarantee basic income preserves the reward for effort. So, if you have two people, okay, one house he does no work, the next house does twenty hours of work. The, the house on the right is richer by whatever it's paid for those twenty hours. Okay. Um, the second thing is, I suppose, you can't game the system by exaggerating their own misfortunes. Exactly. I've got a hunch about right-wing people that they have a peculiar horror of, uh, you know, essentially people exaggerating a misfortune in order to gain. So it becomes a vicious circle. So they set up all these barriers to make people forced to do it more and more. Yeah. And also, you yeah. say, that, okay, it has to be horrible to claim welfare because if it is horrible, then everybody will do it. So that's kind of economic neoliberal. But in this case, everyone will do it, so it's fine. I mean, one, one, this, Absolutely, one, one weird objection to the guaranteed basic income is that although it wouldn't be very exciting on its own, mm -hmm. if you formed a commune in Cornwall and a group of 20 of you all pooled your guaranteed basic income, you could actually have a BMW and a flash washing machine. And people in fact do that. And if people want to do that, in my view, just fine. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in fact, when they did these experiments in Namibia, that, there was some of that. Well, people would say, all right, we're going to take half of our basic income and put it in a common pool. And, and get something nice. And, well, in their case, they, they built a post office. But not, they could have done that. And they could have just had a nice car and drove around. But in which case, might be visible, fine. You can find a better way of living uh, with you know, lower environmental impact and lower cost. What's the problem? Exactly. So, so it fascinates me partly because, oddly, I mean, there are questions about how economically feasible it is. But as you said, a lot of that comes down to misunderstandings about the nature of money. Yes. The other thing that would be interesting is the creative revival that it might make possible, because uh, once you know that your basics are taken care of, mm -hmm. I think one advantage American entrepreneurialism sometimes has is that in parts of the US, it is or was possible to live pretty inexpensively, mm -hmm. you know, if you choose the right part of the US. So in a sense, taking a risk um, is easier than if you've got a London mortgage or, you know, you're, you're bowed sure, down yeah. in debt. And so there's an argument that says that actually, even if only one in a hundred people on a guaranteed basic income ended up you know, forming a band or writing poetry of any merit or whatever, that's enough. That's enough. Yeah. I mean, all you need is one John Lennon. Yes. Think about like the, you know, what you've generated. Or all, you know, for all the people who come up with crank scientific theories, what if one of them actually does come up with a perpetual motion machine? You know, <laughs> it just takes one. But I always think that one conspiracy theory is right. The trouble is I don't know which one. You But so you might argue that looked at collectively, and also and also enabling self-organizing. I think mm -hmm. to an extent. Yes, and people think that's not the case, but I think you know we're, we just don't realize what it would be like if we had free time. So we can't imagine what we do with it. 
um, the first thing you do is restore social ties, you know. And, and even in socialist countries, it's funny, because I had a... Um, uh, it's worth remembering, by the way, that because now in order to support a household, both partners have to work, yes. unless you're in an extractive industry like finance or real estate. Mm -hmm. There has been an actually unquantified huge loss of free time at the family level, and also what you might call social organizing. Uh, you know, so you know, previously there was one party in the household, typically female, not necessarily, who handled the social stuff. Who kind of handled the social stuff and actually, in a sense, was a form of paying back mm -hmm. at an individual level rather than the state level. Um, right. You know, you know, they would actually engage in what you might. I mean, there's a fascinating sentence in the Seam's latest book, which is by two people. And the, the phrase is, it's very interesting, which shows that politics is often a confusion, not about opinion, but about context. So what these people say this, they said, at the federal level I'm a libertarian, the state level I'm a republican, at the town level I'm a democrat, and in my family I'm a socialist. Yeah. 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 And interestingly, depending, it, it's always struck me as weird that you can actually get perfectly right-wing people to engage in socialist activity under the right context. So if you look at the Pall Mall clubs, okay, they're basically socialist. Everybody pays in the same thing. Mm -hmm. Some people use it, you know, a hundred times a year, and some people use it twice. There's a degree to which you pay for things like meals and drinks, but the basic structure of the pub is an NHS for hospitality. You know, it's a, you know, but there's some degree of excludability required. I don't know as an anthropologist, mm -hmm. can we, I mean, I don't know what your view is on Brexit, for example. I know anthropologists can be quite interesting on I don't know. But I mean, there's, I, I can occasionally come across the anthropological argument that actually you know, certain things in human behavior don't scale indefinitely. Right. Or the Dunbar numbers. I actually, uh, this is a whole other conversation. I think it's a, to some degree overstated. Um, I think that actually, if we're talking about you know, hierarchy and, and do domination and things like that, you know, there's an idea that as soon as things get to a certain size, you need to have top down people giving orders. And, um, inequality. Actually, I'm working on an archaeologist right now, there's lots of evidence for very large egalitarian cities. It's a lot harder to find egalitarian households. It's actually the small groups where there's a lot more invested and the people's emotions are tied into it. But it's harder. I mean, it's possible to find them. But, but I think that's where the work, if you want to create an egalitarian society, would be. Oh, the big stuff is that hard. What are the historical bubbles for kind of functioning here? Well, I mean, one thing we've been discovering is that, that there's a lot of egalitarian cities of Teotihuacan. Everybody's heard of Teotihuacan, gigantic city in central Mexico. Um, if you look at the history of Teotihuacan, it starts out as, you know, they built these giant temples and they have these palaces, and something happens about two or three hundred years into the city. You don't know quite what, but they like bury the big temple where they do the human sacrifices and, and, and don't build any more of that stuff. And suddenly the entire city is rebuilt as these sort of large, kind of comfortable villas, all exactly the same size. And there's like 120,000 people living in this city. That's astounding. It's amazing. Yeah. I'm interested to be a great fan of monarchy, because I think what it is is it symbolizes hierarchy while making it ineffectual, which well, is the perfect form of government. Right. Well, I mean, that's like in Madagascar. The, if you really want to create equality, create a king who's dead, and he possesses beautiful yeah. now. Then. Yeah. yeah. Oh, there's a wonderful, there's a wonderful phrase. I think he's an English writer who says that the value of a, you know, in a in a democracy, the value of a monarchy. You're Canadian, so you'll understand this. Is like the king on the chessboard. The value lies in the spaces it denies to the other players. So you don't have your president living in a palace mm -hmm. for eight years, which tends to make them sort of delusional. 
and it also means that you can perform national bling, as on a Saturday with a royal wedding, without it seeming remotely partisan, precisely because the people are arbitrary. Right. So there's, you know, there's a certain value, you know. Royalty are basically like lottery winners. They yeah, exactly. And you, and you just accept, yeah. you know, yeah. and you accept that they have a certain loss of validity because of that, which actually may not be a bad thing. Somebody pointed that out, that like any other celebrity can do something you can't do. Um, either they're, they're beautiful or they have a talent. And the royal family, they're just, you know, exactly like you, except they happen to be the royal family. They're not particularly smart, they're not particularly good looking. And all, all those things in a weird way are an advantage in a sense, yeah. aren't they? But also because they don't get the delusional idea that they're there. They might believe it's by the grace of God, but they don't believe it's necessarily by their own achievements, right. which may be a far worse form of power. Now, there's an advantage well, to there nepotism. Is, there is uh, a sense that, you know, if you're really, really successful, if you're really brilliant and rise to the very top of your field, the greatest honor you can have is to meet this person who's never accomplished anything. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things we have to look at, I would argue that, you know, I, I'm, in a, okay, I'm in a large business of 1,200 people. I don't think many people have bullshit jobs. I hope not. I hope they wouldn't say it. What I would say is that an increasing proportion of their jobs is being bullshit artists. Yeah. So you know, if I probably walked downstairs and went down the corridor, the number of people who are engaged in justifying something, arguing for something. You mentioned the film industry or the television industry where previously you gave a guy a budget, he went to some people he liked and gave them money to make a program. And to be honest, some of the programs were fairly atrocious, but the, the best tennis set were Now, the main source of labor is actually you know, pitching program ideas for programs that may be greenlit and then never made. Exactly. And academic presses, they spend all their time trying to sell things to each other. Like, you write a 20 page proposal for the book. Why not just write the book? I'd love, I'd love to hear you meet again to discuss kind of like the rebranding and reframing of, uh, of anarchist thought. Because I think. Oh, yeah. uh, 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 you know, I think it's a fascinating thing, which is possibly the most widely misunderstood of. Uh, oh yeah, I mean we've got so much bad president. If you think about it, what I, what, what I point out is that um, you know if you go back to the 18th century, the word democrat and anarchist were used interchangeably, and they're both terms of abuse. There's a, and and nowadays you can't say anything bad about democracy or anything good about anarchism. It's fantastic, yeah. But, and your, the same thing. your other point being that actually, I mean, the wage slavery question is very mm. interesting because yeah, my, there's a fantastic discussion in the book mm. that the kind of work that was typically hogged by high status males mm. was the kind of work that had a kind of rhythm to it which people most enjoy, which is basically periods of total inactivity right. interspersed with. This is why anybody in a creative department in an agency leaves it till the last minute. Right. You know, because actually it's periods of staring out of the window interspersed with periods of high intensity activity. What did you call it? You called it punctuated, punctuated hysteria. Punctuated hysteria, which is essentially what we like 
Uh, there may be a gender difference there, that males, but I know that in schools the continuous assessment tends to favor females. And right. exactly. It's also been yeah. 4,000 years before that. Years. Men have formed all those, all the fun stuff. All the fun <laughs> stuff. Well, so, for child care, which has a dramatic scope. Well, at least somehow. Yeah, yeah. No, you're right. <laughs> Being an airline pilot is always described as 99% boredom, 1% terror. But there's something there which I mean, really intrigues me, which is the rhythm of a lot of jobs created by IT, created mm -hmm. by Taylorism, created by. I mean, Adam Smith. really anti human. Yeah. They are anti human. Adam Smith spotted this, didn't he? The division of labour at some level. Mm -hmm. Uh, makes labour more efficient but less emotionally rewarding yeah. because you just strip people You're of sitting the there like making one pip, move and making pip, yeah, another yeah, pip, yeah. another yeah. pip. Yeah. You know, that can't be great. And um, the extent to which I think the, I mean, one of the things I'm trying to do with the team that work for me is saying things like, don't do email in the office at all because there's no point in coming into an office to do that. Okay. Now that's uh, true. At four o'clock, if you're sick of talking to people, go home. It's sunny. You know. Mm -hmm. And actually getting the presenteeism, um, because I don't think you do now, I hope you I hope you do this, the value you add has no relation to time. Okay. And this is where, of course, you know, people in a creative industry, if you include advertising as a creative industry, which I think it just about sneaks in at its best. Okay. Uh, one of the problems is we're actually paid by our clients by the hour, as lawyers are. And yet there is absolutely no correlation between time spent and value created. So we essentially have this perverse incentive to make things time consuming in order to justify them. Which lawyers do too. Which lawyers do. And management consultants, of course, are famous. So what you do as management consultants, you have one guy who's a partner who probably does the intellectual heavy lifting in about 45 minutes. Okay, mm -hmm. And then you have this basic sort of vast reams of Oxbridge graduates mm -hmm. then flood the organization in order to soak up the necessary hours so you can right. charge three million quid. Right, right. And so procurement, which is essentially a business function, it's worth investing in the anthropology of procurement would be a great area. Mm -hmm. I mean I, my hunch is it led to the Grenfell Tower. You know, in other words, I have a you know, I have a specification, I must meet this at as low a price as possible. If anybody comes to me by the way, which would have happened in the old days and said your specification is wrong. Um, uh, you're probably not allowed to act on it. You don't have the autonomy to actually say, good point, actually we don't want the B minus panels. Okay? But procurement in, in advertising would be basically, we want to get your hourly rate down um, and we'll have a blended rate of senior and junior people. None of which has anything to do with value. It's entirely to do with, with making sure someone doesn't make too much money. I mean, I mean, I, I go a bit further and say there's a really strong, you mentioned in the book, which I think is interesting, that the people who always get off the hook for well-paid people who are also valuable are doctors. Right. But you make the point that most of the improvement in human longevity is actually through hygiene and diet. Mm. And actually, quite a lot of improvement, this is where it gets complicated. I write about, I'm writing about this at the moment. Quite a lot of improvement in hygiene was actually companies like Unilever promoting cleanliness as status not cleanliness as health benefit. Well, that's very interesting. So the early ads don't say, so it's essentially, you, they don't you take, say, don't wash your hands you take, or catch a cold. No, they, they don't say, yeah. wash with pear soap and avoid a cholera epidemic. Okay. It basically says, they say you'll be more attractive to be able to yeah. I mean, Actually, the fantastic thing is, always the bridesmaid, never the bride, is actually a copy line from a listery. Oh, was, really? Yeah. Okay. Uh, now, that, what that's doing is translating what you might call um, 
social economic benefits into Darwinian psychology, mm -hmm. which is essentially people don't really care about collective benefits like color epidemics, but they really care about being signal beyond the age of X. Mm -hmm. So we'll essentially promote this behavior, which is socially beneficial, which you believe would have believed. I mean, Lever Brothers would have believed, I'm not sure, there might be a Quaker angle there, I'm not sure. They would have believed that this was a public benefit, mm -hmm. but they didn't sell it on those grounds, which is interesting. That's the best excuse I've ever heard for these sort of ads to make you feel insecure about yourself, and really it's actually doing the work of Louis Pasteur and people like yeah, that. Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I'll have to look into that. It's, it's, uh, I mean, it's possibly the case. But actually, in other words, that you know what the collective, the, the beneficial collective behavior would be, but you can't. I mean, it's very interesting that there are some really curious psychological things now where if you basically promote food as being healthy, it doesn't taste as good. So actually oh, putting right. low in fat on a packet of biscuits. Um, Can you also just reduce the, the, the how good it tastes and thus convince people it's healthy? Well, what you, uh, uh, yes, you can. Yeah, I mean, I, mean the, the, I think there's a placebo effect thing, which is health food, wheatgrass, has to taste, yes, has to involve a degree of sacrifice to be believable. Right. And, and if it tastes that bad, there's got to be some reason to be eating it. So, exactly. it must be good for you. Yeah. I mean, we, we talk about red, I talk about Red Bull quite a lot, which, mm -hmm. in order for people to believe it has psychoactive powers, it has to taste really weird. You know, if you went to a doctor and said, you know, well, there's this new oncology treatment, do you want the black currant flavor or the raspberry? <laughs> we wouldn't really believe in it. Whereas if it involved a degree of pain and inconvenience. Terrible, yeah. 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 But you also made the very good point that actually a hell of a lot of the value of doctors is probably placebo. Yeah, I was shocked about that when I've seen some of the numbers. That, um, because, in, in fact, the placebo effect is probably even more extreme than they think. Because... I, someone said there was one only, exception is antibiotics. My grandfather was a doctor there, both before and after antibiotics. There's two yeah. exceptions. The yeah. only two medicines that always way outperform placebos are uh, antibiotics and Viagra. <laughs> they actually work. Unless you case that pornography could be placebo <laughs> Viagra, I suppose. You, you porn is the major competitor. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. but, um, just to say that it's David Graeber, Bullshit Jobs, a theory published by Alan Lane. Lots and lots of pages, not a lot about, about Read it, uh, you'll never quite see work again, in the same way again. And the greatest books do that. They're a kind of, you see the landscape through new eyes completely. And um, the, the people who should most read it, actually, I can't see it being adopted as required reading in business schools and MBA programs, but that's where it's needed most. It's absolutely fantastic. David, thank you very much indeed. Huge thanks to David Graeber for coming into our office to record this, and to Rory for his endless interest in interesting people and topics. Bullshit Jobs is available to purchase now, online and in stores. You can follow David Graeber on Twitter, and you can follow us at our new Twitter handle, at Ogilvy Consult UK. Those of you who followed at Ogilvy Change will have been transferred automatically. We want to thank Sound Lounge and Julian Goodkind for managing the music origination and production for this show. Thanks for listening.